Now we come to the time in our worship service where we hear God's word preached. And as we turn to this, let us look to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word and for giving us your Son, the word of life, the one who is our King, the one who saves us from our enemies, the one in whom we have hope and peace. Dear Lord, we ask that this word would be pleasing to you, that you would take the preaching of your word and glorify yourself and help us to know you better and to love you better for your glory so that we might draw close to you and find our strength and renewed hope in you. We ask all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now today is the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning of the Christmas season. And as the song says, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Now all of the wonder of Christmas stems from the fact that this holiday commemorates the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And indeed, this is a beautiful, miraculous, and joyous season, one to anticipate and to enjoy for all it's worth. Now, when we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating both weakness and strength at the same time, although in a distinct way. We see weakness and frailty in the fact that Jesus was born as a baby, as a human being like us. Though without sin, Jesus can fully relate to what we experience as human beings. But we also see weakness in the fact that we ourselves are weak and powerless. We are not able to save ourselves. And as a result, there is darkness and oppression that mankind experiences. And yet we cannot solve this on our own. But that's where the strength of Christmas comes in. For the baby in the manger was the Son of God, whom the Father had sent to rescue us. His name is Jesus, which is the Greek form of the word Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And indeed, the angel told Joseph that Jesus would save his people from their sins. And in addition to this, Jesus was born to be the king, to reclaim his people from the enemy, and to establish a perfect, eternal kingdom. This is exactly what we need, and what God's people had anticipated for a long time. For this reason, as we begin the Advent season, let us turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Long before Jesus was born, God was preparing his people for the Messiah that he would send, for the deliverance that he would give them. And as Christians, we have the benefit of fixing our gaze upon the child who fulfills this promise. The power and wonder of Christmas come from the one born to be our king. And with this in mind, hear now the word of the Lord, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Now, when we read this passage, this prophecy that God had given to Isaiah before the Messiah would come, we're entering into a discussion as Isaiah is making a shift from bad news to good news. And to appreciate the good news, let's take a minute to consider what the bad news was. Now, God had chosen David as the king he wanted, the one through whom he would provide the greater king, the one who would rule over his people forever, who would establish an eternal kingdom which could never be destroyed or undermined. Now, when David's grandson Rehoboam assumed the throne, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The southern kingdom was called Judah, after the name of the primary tribe, and they kept the sons of David as their kings. By contrast, there was also the northern kingdom, which retained the name Israel, but they threw off the rule of David and his sons. And they had a succession of different dynasties that would rule over them. Now, when you evaluate these two different kingdoms, we see that none of the kings of the north walked with God. And they would go from bad to worse. And by contrast, we see the fact that in the southern kingdom, in Judah, some followed the Lord and some didn't. And often the majority of the population would follow whatever their king was doing. Now, when God called Isaiah to be a prophet, he commissioned him to speak to the southern kingdom, to Judah, at about the end of the third quarter of their history. So there was still time left, but you were getting kind of close to the end. And as Isaiah would preach to the people, in good times, He would warn them if they were starting to slip in the relationship with God. And in the bad times, he would send a warning that they needed to look back to God and repent, lest he bring his judgment upon them. And this particular prophecy came in the midst of the time of King Ahaz, who did evil in God's eyes. 
So Isaiah is warning the king and his subjects to turn from their wickedness. And yet, Isaiah would also give them the assurance that it wasn't too late for them to change because God still wanted to bless his people. So even within these notes of warning and these prophecies of judgment, he still would give glimmers of hope that God was in control and the fact that even their sin would not undo God's plan and that God would fulfill his purpose. But in a nutshell, what was the wrong that Judah was doing? Simply put, it was turning away from God. Part of this was when they would worship other gods, when they were supposed to worship God alone. In fact, we read in the Pentateuch, just before the people entered the promised land, that the main phrase that they were to remember was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one God, and he is the only God that we are to worship. But the other part was when they would stop trusting in God to protect them, especially when God had promised to protect them, and instead they would look to unbelieving nations like Egypt or Babylon as their primary source of protection, thinking that they would keep them safe. And again, they forgot the fact that God would protect them if only they would trust him. So simultaneously, God was warning them of the fact that their apostasy would lead to greater problems, not lesser problems. And yet he would also try to whet their appetite for God's better plan that he was holding out for them. And just before our passage, Isaiah was rebuking people when they would try to seek the dead for advice, when God had forbidden them to do so, and he himself had always proven faithful to give his word to his people at the right time and exactly what they needed to hear. Isaiah was warning them that if they ignored God, they would drift farther and farther from him. They would become more and more hardened against him, and they would find themselves in pitch darkness. The kind of darkness where you can't see out, no matter how hard you try, and there is no glimmer of light to be seen. And this isn't a new problem. When Adam sinned and then ran away from God, he did so not only for himself, but for all people after him. When the human heart desires what displeases God, and when people hide from God, when they find themselves indifferent to him or even afraid of him, it shows that Adam's sin is ours as well. There might be different ways to turn away from God, but at their root is the same problem that mankind has had from the beginning. That's why the biblical authors would often call people to turn from the darkness to the light and why God would promise to bring light to people in the darkness and why they would encourage people to see the fact that the darkness is not to be enjoyed. It's not a good thing. It's something that they should want to turn away from, and they should want the light that God would provide for them. So that's why in our confession of sin, we asked God, make us deeply aware of the great evil of our sins, 
and work in us a heartfelt contrition for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Redeemer. You see, this is a heart change, a change that not only desires the forgiveness of sin, but also cleansing from our sin. And at Christmas, we're celebrating the Savior who did both for us, the one who not only forgave our sin, but also is the one who, through his Holy Spirit, cleanses us from sin, so that we would start to see more and more how dark our sin is, but rather how bright and beautiful our Savior and his ways are. God didn't send his Son so that we would enjoy the darkness and continue to wander in it without consequences. He came so that we might see the danger and gloom of it. And again, that we would see something different and that we would love this difference. And this is true regarding the bigger sins, the ones that we would quickly affirm to be wrong, as well as the smaller sins that we might trick ourselves into thinking they don't matter. God wants us to turn away from each so that our hearts would resonate with the hymn that we just sang, where it says, O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. This includes the sorrow that sin and death causes, as well as sin and death themselves. And God is faithful to deal with this for us. So now that we've heard the bad news, it would do us well to now pay attention to the good news, which we see in our passage. This is where Isaiah turns from the darkness to the light. To see this, I'm going to read verse 1 again, but I'm also going to read verse 22 of chapter 8 as well, so that you can see that contrast from darkness to light. And they will look to the earth, But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust in the thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You see that contrast. The people who weren't walking with God were in the pitch darkness, but for others, there would be no gloom and there would be no darkness. What good news this is for someone who longs to do what pleases God and who grieves over their sin, but also for the one who sees the error of their way and wants to repent and turn back to him. Isaiah continues in this verse by saying, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but... In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now these are the regions at the top of the northern kingdom, which were the first to be conquered by the enemy forces. More than that, this was an area that would soon come to be known for their predominantly Gentile population. And as a result, the Jewish people would look at Galilee and think, there's something wrong here. This isn't the way that God intended it to be. This was supposed to be our land. And it's some of the reason why, in Jesus' time, there were people who didn't like Samaria very much, 
and they didn't like Galilee very much. But they really liked Jerusalem, the capital city that God had chosen, and where the Jewish people still were. But our passage is saying something specific here. It's saying the fact that God wasn't finished with Galilee, and that both Jews and Gentiles alike would benefit from the light that God was going to bring there. When the heavenly host appeared before the shepherds, they declared peace for all those with whom God is pleased. And likewise, the Magi, who were Gentiles themselves, came to honor Jesus for who he is. God will bless all those whom he wants to bless. And that's why we come to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Think about that. Pitch darkness being replaced by radiant, dazzling light. The kind of light that is beautiful to see. And this brings to mind the fact that, remember the plagues that God brought on the land of Egypt when God wanted to set his people free? Well, the ninth plague was the plague of darkness, pitch darkness, so dark that for three days people had to stay exactly where they were and they never saw another person. But at the very same time, there was no darkness where the people of God were living. There was just as much light as before, showing that distinction that God was making for those who were against him and for those who were now brought to be his. And so it is here. The people who were in darkness didn't create light for themselves. They didn't even find the light themselves. Instead, God allowed it to shine upon them. And likewise, when we turn from darkness to light, it's not that we have created light for ourselves, or even that we in our own strength or our own cleverness have founded the light. It's because God has shone his light within our hearts. He has opened our hearts to receive him and to delight in that light. And then as a result, we are able to walk in the light. And God floods the darkness with his glorious light. But who is that light, you may ask? None other than our Lord Jesus, for he would live in Galilee and he would fulfill most of his ministry there. And Matthew would point out the fact that this passage, this very passage, was the reason why Jesus went about doing good in Galilee. God allowed his light to shine upon them through the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. There is a line from O Little Town of Bethlehem that says, Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And surely this is true of Bethlehem, where the light of the world was born as a man. But it's also true of Galilee, where people saw the light of the world doing his good work. Now one cool thing about being in the country at night is seeing how a full moon illuminates the sky. In fact, there are moments when in the night, it seems almost as bright as a cloudy day when there's a full moon in the sky. And this is something cheerful to see. 
Or maybe you remember how in Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, For the Lord's anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Likely you've seen how a sunrise causes the darkness to fade and the daylight to grow stronger and more beautiful. It can make you happy to see the sunlight coming to bathe you with its rays. And likewise, God promised to fill with joy those who saw the light. So that's why Isaiah said in verse 3, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. They rejoice just like they do when they gather in the crops that they had worked so hard to cultivate and waited so long to receive, and even wondered if they would grow as they should. A professor of mine has commented that this is the same kind of satisfaction that we have when we receive our paycheck, when we've worked hard and we finally have the fruit of our labor. No less happy is the army that just won a battle and is now dividing the conquered assets among themselves. If you visit the Air and Space Museum at the location in Chantilly, Virginia, you can see planes that belong to the Axis forces during World War II. In fact, I remember one that still has the Nazi symbol on it. Imagine the thrill that the Allied forces would have had to not only win the war, but to be able to have these as their own. These planes stand as a reminder that our nation was on the winning side of the war, that we had victory. And the same is true for those whom God brought from defeat to victory, whom, those whom he rescues from their enemies and then sets free to serve him. Last week, we looked at Psalm 100, which calls people to shout in victorious triumph to God. And indeed, at Christmas, we celebrate the fact that we have a Savior who did come to rescue us. And while he still had a life to live and a death to die and a resurrection life to come back to, God had guaranteed all of this from start to finish. So even at his birth, the angels would declare that he was the one who would save people from their sins and that he is the Messiah, the Lord. Not just that he will be the Messiah, but that he actually is. That God would see it through and that even now at Christmas, we can celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. His birth made all that possible. And this brings us to the joy that we should experience at Christmas time. I also mentioned last week how we should keep Thanksgiving in our hearts, just like we are told to keep Christmas in our hearts, and the reason why we can keep Christmas in our hearts. And the joy that it brings is because of Christ. He is the reason for the season, and when we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating part of the gospel itself. In fact, the gospel itself. So now we come to the part where we see the fact that God indeed wants to rescue his people. The fact that there was a time when God's people were being held by the enemy, 
when they were being oppressed, when they saw no way to set themselves free. And that's why it says in verses 4 and 5, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now the yoke was a sign in that time of being under someone's control and even of being oppressed by those people. And in fact, there would be times where the people would try to break off the yoke themselves. And that goes back to when they would depend either upon themselves or upon another power. In fact, it's kind of weird, the fact that at one moment, they would be looking at Egypt. Egypt is the one who's going to save us from Assyria. But soon, either Egypt would prove to be unreliable or they themselves would try to take Israel. So now it's Babylon. Now it's Babylon who will save us. So now let's fight against Egypt and let's look to Babylon as our source of protection. But soon Babylon would look upon Judah and want them for themselves. So now it's back to Egypt thinking, okay, maybe now Egypt will help us. And on and on it would go. But really what the people needed was to realize the fact that God was the one who would take off the yoke from them in his time if they would trust him. And it's also why Jesus would say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Instead of weighing us down, God's yoke actually brings us refreshment and joy. It's exactly what we need. And similarly, the staff and the rod are probably the royal scepter that a king would have that is kind of a symbol of the fact that he is king. And indeed, the people were afraid of the fact of an enemy nation coming and conquering them. And again, this this comes when not yet, they weren't yet overcome, but Assyria was on its way, and they were wondering, what are we going to do? But God is promising again that he would provide the deliverance, that that scepter, that scary scepter that they see, God wants to smash it. And God would provide deliverance for his people. But could God really do this? Some people might ask. So Isaiah calls them to remember the way that he rescued his people from Midian back in the time of the judges. You see, there was this time where the Midianites and all of their allies would come as the sand on the seashore. And they would come and they would take away all of the people's crops. And the people cried out to God for help. And God called Gideon to rescue the people. And God whittled down his army to 300 men. An army like the sand of the seashore versus 300 soldiers. All to prove that it was God who would rescue them. And God did indeed rescue them. So if God could rescue them then, surely he would rescue them now. Because God never changes and his power never comes to an end. He would give them the victory. And in fact, the battle would be over 
so that they would take all of those bloody boots and all of those bloody garments and throw them into the fire. They would burn and it would be over. In fact, the Hebrew text actually brings emphasis to this. It really says the fact that it would be for incineration, fuel for the fire. So it repeats it twice. The fact that God would indeed bring the battle to a complete end for his glory and for his people's good. And I hope all of this shows us how foolish it is to rely upon ourselves and not to rely upon God when God is the one who would save us. And sometimes God would give his people into the hands of the enemy to show them the fact that they really did need him. The fact that serving the enemy was not a good thing. The fact that it would be oppressive. The fact that it would be hard. So that they would come back to God and see the fact that he truly was the one who should be over them. The one whom they should trust. He is an all-powerful God and a completely trustworthy one. So this passage sends the clear message that God will give victory to his people. The darkness will be turned to light, the mourning to joy, the oppression to freedom. Everyone needs God in their lives. And if we put God in his proper place, his strength will prove sufficient and he will prove worthy of our dependence. If we put ourselves in that place, we will quickly see the fact that we can't do it on our own. And if we put someone else in that place, we will see the fact that either they won't be able to do it either, or that they will take advantage of the power that's been given to them. But if we give it to God, God will look out for us. And the Christmas season serves as a reminder of where we should put our ultimate trust in none other than God himself. And again, we look at that baby in the manger and we see the fact that he is the king sent to save us. So thus far, we have seen how Isaiah has called the people of Judah to turn from their sin back to God and to experience the deliverance and the victory and the light that he has promised. And the same is true for us today. But remember, at that time, God's people didn't know everything that we know now. Yes, they anticipated a Messiah who would come, but they didn't know all of the details that we know now. They knew what they had been given. So when they heard that there would be a light in Galilee, that there would be rejoicing and victory, and that there would be an end to the oppression, they may have still had questions. How exactly would God bring this about? And when would he do so? While the rest of the passage provides the reason why they could have such hope, a reminder of who their deliverer would be, no less than a good king who would rule over them forever. So now let's turn to verses 6 through 7, which are really the climax the key of our passage. And let's start by looking at verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Surely as we read these phrases, what's playing in our mind is that well-loved peace from Handel's Messiah. For us, to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And rightfully so, because what Isaiah is saying here is a crucial part of who our Lord Jesus is. Now, as I mentioned before, God had chosen David and his line to be the kingly line for his people. And one of David's sons would reign forever. And even though there would be a time where the son of David was off the throne, God would put him back on. And he would put him back on in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you turn back in your bulletins to our Old Testament reading, back on page 6, you will see that what we read was the promise that God gave to David himself about this. First, God promised that he would make a great name for David. And the reason why David was great is because of his greater son, the son of David. And second, God promised that he would make his people secure so that their enemies would no longer harass them as before. Third, God promised that he would provide a son for David, whom God himself would count as his son. And initially, this would refer to Solomon and to his, his descendants, who would be imperfect, and yet God would never stop loving them. But ultimately, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, who never sinned and yet accepted the punishment for our sins. And who is the Son of God, who loves us, and who is loved by God, and with whom God is well pleased. And fourth, we see in that passage the fact that God promised that there would be no end to David's kingdom. And we know the reason why. For the one who sits on the throne is none other than the eternal Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the baby who would be born as the heir to the throne of David. And now, if we look at that same page, at the New Testament reading, this is where the angel told the Virgin Mary that God was about to fulfill that promise. Remember that promise that God made to David? Well, now it's coming to pass in all of its fullness. That Mary would conceive, that she would bear a son, and that her son would be great, the son of the Most High, and that his human forefather would be none other than David himself, and that he would get the throne. What a reassuring promise this is. And the reason why we look at the, both of these passages together, as well as our main passage, is the fact that it shows the fact that God keeps his promise. The fact that God didn't forget. The fact that even when things seemed bleak, God was bringing it together. And it gives hope for us as well as we anticipate our king returning. So God would smash the scepter of those who hated his people. And he would place a new scepter into the hand of his son, who loves his people just as much as his father does. And now if we turn back to our passage, to Isaiah 9, notice the names that God gives for Jesus. He is Wonderful Counselor, the one who leads his people in the truth, who gives perfect and authoritative guidance or counsel. He is Mighty God, a clear reference to his deity. Not only would the king represent God to the people, but he himself would be God 
as well. He is eternal father, and this does not mean that he is the same person as God the Father. Indeed, in the Trinity, we have one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're looking at God the Son. And yet, there would be times when the king would refer to himself as the father of his people. So in essence, what this means is that Jesus as king would lead his people just like a good father would lead his children. Which points us to his own father. And not only that, he is the prince of peace, and his reign would be characterized by peace. Jesus would obtain peace between God and mankind, and he would restore peace and nothing but peace to the created order. In sum, God promises his people the perfect king, the one who deserves to rule over us, and the one whom we need, indeed whom we would want to be our king. But though he is the eternal son of God, he was also born at a point of time as a baby. And that's the mystery of who our God is, of who our Lord Jesus Christ is, the fact that he is truly God and truly man at the same time forever. And because of who he is and what he came to do, it was right for the shepherds and the magi to fall down and worship him. And we also are called to do so. So as one of the verses in Angels from the Realms of Glory says, Though an infant now we view him, he shall fill his father's throne, gather all the nations to him, every knee shall then bow down, come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn king. And now for the final verse of our passage, verse 7, which reads, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we all know, most terms of office end at some point. Maybe you liked a particular president or governor but you realized the fact that his term would come to an end, and maybe you were worried about what would happen at the next election and what changes might come. Or maybe you didn't like the person who was in office, and maybe you were counting the days until the next election, hoping for a change. In either case, we see the fact that there is a limit often to how long human rulers can be in office and even for the offices that have a life appointment, even those will end, either because the person dies, or because the person retires, or because they're removed from office. And even if you look at the nations that have a royal family, if you look at these, there are times where you might look back and see that there was once a different dynasty before them. And there's always the possibility that there will be a successful overthrow of power when the royal family is no longer on the throne. But not so with our Lord Jesus. He is always 
on the throne. And in fact, he came to claim the throne and he would sit on it forever. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. No one could take him off the throne. And he would rule on that throne forever. And in fact, his kingdom is promised to grow until he reclaims the entire heavens and earth at the end of time. And the same is true concerning peace. For the eternal state will be full of peace. Jesus will never leave his throne, and his reign will never grow old, and it will never deteriorate. He will always reign with perfect justice and righteousness. And the final line says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He brings this about because he wants to, and he will not stop until everything is made exactly the way he wants it to be. Ray Ortland, in his commentary, mentions that this verse is saying something like this, or this is something that we should look at when we see this verse. When we are finally glorifying and enjoying him perfectly, we will look at one another and say, we didn't do this, God did. This is the triumph of his zealous grace, end quote. So we have spoken about turning from sin and returning to God, but God is the one who changes our hearts so that we would indeed respond to his grace and indeed repent before him and love him and walk with him. We have spoken about the victory that God provides for his people, and he is the one who makes this happen. And while we do walk in victory, while we trust in Christ, and while we keep in step with the Spirit, and while there are things that we can do to walk in vitality, even that is something that the Lord is leading us in. Our obedience stems from his enabling. And we have spoken about the fact that the king that God has provided us is Jesus and is the perfect king. And indeed, when Jesus came to earth, he did everything that God had sent him to do. And he will return to consummate his kingdom. In all of this, to God belongs the glory. Now, Christmas is a wonderful time of year, and it gives us joy to know that we've come to the beginning of this holiday season. So in this first Sunday of Advent, we have looked at a passage where our Lord and Savior was foretold. And we have the privilege of looking back upon this passage and knowing that this is the long-awaited king. But how might we put into practice what we have learned during this Christmas season? Well, to get us started, I'd like for us to look at the bulletin on page 12, where the prayer is given as a possible response to our sermon. It comes from the Book of Common Prayer, and it's the prayer written for this particular Sunday in Advent. Now keep in mind that when you look at the Book of Common Prayer, you have to be discerning because the English Reformation brought up the fact that not all of the prayers are theologically correct, but this one is a good one. And this is one that I think would help springboard our application and prime our hearts to walk with the Lord. Let me read what's said here. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light now and in the time of this mortal life. 
now in the time of this mortal life, in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, now and ever. Amen. As Jesus came to turn us from darkness to light, let's look for where the darkness has affected our lives and allow Christ's light to shine upon it. Let the Christmas lights that you see and which bring joy to your eyes be a reminder that Jesus came to give us light so that we might walk in light and have joy in doing so. Let us put on the whole armor of God, knowing that when Jesus was born, he came to live a perfect life of righteousness. Every single day of his life, he wore the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and prayer. He did all of this perfectly for us. And by his grace, he gives this armor to us, for us to wear, so that when we face temptation or when life is hard, we may claim the promises of God and we might walk in his victory, knowing that he is our sergeant and that he indeed will lead us into victory. Let us adopt the same perspective as our Lord, who humbled himself by being born as a human being. He associated with us in our weakness. And we also should look for ways to minister to others in their weakness. Let us anticipate the return of our Lord when all of his enemies fall defeated and every square inch of the darkness is overcome by radiant light. As it says in another passage, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And let's, ex- let's be expectant of the fact that every part of his kingdom will enjoy peace for all eternity. And finally, let's experience all the happiness that we can during this Christmas season, knowing that when we see our king face to face, it will be an endless celebration, even more joyous than the best Christmas celebration you've ever had. A child has been born to us, and we can say it's the most wonderful time of the year because in it, we celebrate the most wonderful king of all. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for sending our Lord Jesus Christ to be our king, to rescue us from the darkness and to rescue us from the enemy so that we might be yours and that we might enjoy being yours. We thank you for this Christmas season and we thank you for the reason why we celebrate it. Please fill our hearts with your joy and peace. And please help us to walk with you in the light, in your victory, and looking at the face of our beloved King. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.